All right, well, welcome back to the Gospel of John. This is our next to the last week in John, and I can hear the lament in your voices. We actually started, we actually started this series the 1st of February, 2015. It's been a long time, hasn't it? We've only, we've only taken a couple breaks. So um, I, I, I appreciate you all extending me grace and taking our time to get through this. Um, today's going to feel like Easter because we're talking about the resurrection. Um, here's, here's how pastors think. You know, we, pastors call Easter the Super Bowl, right? Okay, and so it's ironic that when we're talking about the resurrection today, today's the Super Bowl. So, I mean, nothing can go wrong today. I mean, Mike, we're going to talk about, like, the most important topic in all the Bible, and then the Carolina Panthers are going to win the Super Bowl. That's like win-win. It's going to be a, a good day. But here's the thing in regards to the resurrection. Here's why pastors call it the Super Bowl. Not just Easter, but the resurrection in general. It's because there's no bigger day in the history of, of mankind than the day that Jesus walked out of the tomb. And that really is the importance of the resurrection. We're going to cover all of chapter 20, just like we cover all of chapter 19. So um, uh, I'm going to not, um, not take a lot of time here with, um, with preliminary talk. We're going to read just the first 10 verses together, and then we'll go through the, the passage pretty, uh, pretty systemic, systematically uh, as we work through this, this idea today. Uh, read with me John 20, verses 1 through 10. John 20, verses 1 through 10. Here we go. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scriptures, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their home. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pause to say thank you for another day. Thank you for the gathering of your church, and we thank you uh, in particular today just um, for this topic that we get to talk about. There's no other, there's no bigger day uh, in in the Bible, where uh, we get to celebrate the, uh, the 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 raising of Jesus back to life, and Lord, I pray that although it's not Easter, God, that we would see um, really the, the the same exuberance, God, that you would cause in us the same excitement that we get when we come to church, all dressed up and 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 eager to go on. On Easter, God, reenact that today in the midst of us, just because we've read your word and your word has encouraged us and edified us and and caused us to to have hope, not just in Jesus' resurrection, but in ours in future days 
as well. God, I pray that you would honor your word today, that we, we stand um, submitted to it. We stand under it, praying that you would change us by your gospel. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we have literally come full circle in the gospel of John a, a year ago uh, last week. Um, I introduced this topic uh, that John gives us in, in his gospel of, um, of that you may believe. That really is John's goal. John's goal in his gospel, stated in, in chapter 20, verse 31, is that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that having believed that, we would have life in his name. And this is the way that John tries to prove that to, to us, to people like us who perhaps have never heard of Jesus, perhaps who aren't convinced that Jesus is God, that he's, he's the Christ. Uh, John introduces us to Jesus' word and his works, his teaching and, and his miracles. And then John does this, this, this really important um, thing. He us, introduces us to people, people like you and I, who have encounters with Jesus. And John, John shows us how in those encounters with Jesus, our lives are impacted. More importantly, our lives are changed. Now, truth be told, all those lives aren't changed for the better. So, some of them have a negative consequence. But for the most part, Everyone that comes to comes in contact with Jesus, their life is changed or they, they just reject Jesus outright. And so John narrates the resurrection. What he does is he gives us a view of, again, four different encounters with Jesus, even post resurrection. And the first one that he gives us a glimpse at is Mary Magdalene. Verse one. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. These are important words. If we could simply go to all the gospels and see uh, how they're impact, how they're unpacking uh, this post-resurrection scene, then I think all of us would um, would uh, marvel at how John highlights the role of women in the life of of Jesus, particularly in this scene post resurrection. Uh, right off the bat, uh, this is what John is telling us: that women have a significant role in the Christian church, and 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 definitely they have a special place in the devotion of of Jesus. Um, Female believers seem to have had special and holy devotion to Jesus, really just as they do now. I mean, look around. Half this room are, are, is filled with women who, because I know some of you, have great devotion to our Lord. And so what was going on is all the male disciples, except for, for John, had, I mean, they, they were hunkered down. They left when Jesus went to the cross because they thought they were going to be arrested as well. What happened? You had the women that, that stuck around. Uh, including Mary Magdalene. And so John focuses on Mary. Um, this is the Mary who in Luke's gospel, uh, the, Luke, the writer Luke says, Jesus uh, cast seven demons out of her. Uh, this is the Mary that, along with other women, had the financial means to support Jesus' ministry monetarily. Um, and so this is if we were to put the four Gospels together, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, this is really how the, the sequence of 
of Jesus and his resurrection would have gone. Matthew's gospel gives us the most detail about exactly what happened when Jesus came out of the, came out of the tomb. Matthew says around dawn, so around 6 or 6.30 in the morning, Jesus was raised from the dead. It was accompanied by an earthquake. I mean, the ground shook. Angels descended from heaven, and those angels rolled that stone away from the tomb. Pilate's guards, Matthew's gospel tells us, were situated there because Pilate had said, hey, somebody's going to come and try and steal Jesus. Stay here. Don't move. The earthquake happens. Jesus gets up. Guess what happens? Those soldiers are going to do what soldiers do when they get scared. They, they got out of there. They, they fled in terror. Later on, we don't know if this was minutes, moments, or hours later, uh, women, several women, we know that we know f- the names of at least four of them, but uh, Scripture suggests that they were actually a number of women that were coming to the tomb. They were discussing as they were as they were walking, how are we going to roll that stone away from that away from that tomb so that we can anoint Jesus with spices and give him a proper burial since he would, he was buried in haste by Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea um, after taking him off of the resurrection. So those women stay. They're engaged by an angel. This angel comes and tells them, hey, Jesus isn't here. He's been resurrected. Mary Magdalene doesn't stay. She, she's frantic. She's like panicking when she doesn't see Jesus in the tomb. So she runs back and tells the disciples, particularly she tells Jan, uh, John and Peter. John and Peter, they're want, I mean, they want to investigate. It's like, what's going on? They run to, uh, back to the tomb. They get there. They investigate. They actually look inside. They believe. They see and believe. But something interesting happens. Nothing else goes forward. I mean, they, they go back home after that. Um, and then that leaves Mary at the tomb. So that really is how the four Gospels put together the resurrection of Jesus. We don't get all that detail in the Gospel of John, but I thought it would be helpful for all of us to actually know where John's account sort of fits in. I want to I pay particular attention here uh, to Mary. The picture that John is painting of, of Mary is probably amongst the most lovely and moving in all of, of Scripture. Mary had a special place in Jesus' life uh, because he ministered to her. And I think it would be right to say that the love that Mary had for Jesus is what draws her back to back to this this tomb. Uh, we don't know how, how Mary got from. I mean, she ran to get John and Peter. I don't know if she ran back with them, if she um, in her sadness kind of meandered back. But somehow she ends up back at the tomb and she's in front of it and she seems to, to be in a very emotional state. Um, think about this in regards to Mary. Uh, she has a life that has been utterly transformed by Jesus. I mean, he delivered, he, he set her free from uh, a demon possession. Very likely, Mary had followed Jesus' ministry for the two or three years uh, following, uh, following that ministry that he had to her. I can see Mary uh, just a week before probably lined along the streets in Jerusalem with all those who were welcoming Jesus in, riding on a donkey with her hands raised, waving palm branches, um, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Think about this. Jesus was the one that set her free. Jesus was the one that was going to be the, the supposed Messiah. He was the most popular man in the world to the Jews at that point. 
only to days later see him end up on the cross. Perhaps Mary was in that crowd, not yelling at Jesus, crucify him, crucify him, but mesmerized that these very Jews that seemed to bestow praise on their supposed Messiah would at the same time curse him and, and not want him as their leader anymore. I think Mary was disillusioned and dismayed at this point because this, this man, the, the one who had rescued her, the one who had given her salvation, the one who was the impending hope of Israel became the, the most humiliated man in all the world. And so Mary's sad. She's heartbroken. She's wrecked. She's exhausted by grief. She reaches her emotional capacity. She breaks down. She starts weeping. Her mind is still fixated on the body that's apparently missing. And so that, that really is what draws her to the, uh, back to the tomb. I mean, she's, she's drawn by her love of Jesus. This, this is what we see in verse, uh, skip down to verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look inside the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting there, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. One at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Verse 14. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Uh, there's a lot in there I like to talk about. I'm going to narrow it down. I find it interesting that, um, that Mary encounters angels and kind of dismisses them. I mean, Hebrews says that we will be in the presence of angels unaware, but these weren't unaware angels. I mean, angels aren't your cute little cherubs playing harps on, on clouds. I mean, angels are God's messengers. And we've seen angels in the Bible, I mean, look like, I mean, they come to, you know, to, to open up a can and beat somebody down, right? The angels were there at Jesus' birth. Announcing his birth, singing glory to God in the highest. The angels came and ministered to Jesus um, when he was baptized. The angels came when Jesus went into the wilderness after that baptism. And the angels are here after Jesus' resurrection. And very likely these angels weren't here to, to look cute and, and do small talk. They were there to, to be a messenger that God had raised his son back to life. Uh, Matthew's gospel says that, that they were radiant white. Da- they had dazzling appeal. So Mary couldn't have missed that these, I mean, they're, they're glowing. You know, like Moses came from the mountain of God and his face was glowing. These, their whole body was glowing, bright white, like Casper the ghost kind of stuff. Right? Mary missed it. Mary's having a supernatural experience, and that somehow isn't enough to move her from her sadness. And so what I want you to see is Mary is, she's not just weeping. I mean, she is in, she's, I mean, she's struggling with this idea that her Savior has died. Not only that, somebody has taken her body when she had come to honor him by, by anointing it. But then something happens. She turns and sees a man who looks vaguely familiar, but kind of not. And he says her name. Verse 15. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. 
and that he had said these things to her. So uh, she has an encounter with Jesus, this Jesus who was dead and is now alive. And I would say uh, Mary's world changes at that moment. Everything that she knew that she was worried about, I mean, it changed in that moment, that moment that she realized Jesus was resurrected. Two lessons and and three implications really, really quickly. I've already mentioned the, the first lesson, just the tenderness of a, of a holy female heart. I, ladies, I think there's something that God has given you that's a gift to you, but it's also meant to be a gift to him. The way that you worship the Lord, I think we, should, we, we would all do ourselves justice to not demean or minimize the role of women in the church. Ladies, you have a, a, a significant part. You're, you're as, as equal to any man in your role in the church, and God has given you just special grace um, in your devotion to the Lord. And I think that's why we see churches filled with women. The other thing would be, um, and this is not necessarily a great thing, the power of grief over a, dearly, a dear loved one. I mean, have you ever been there? Have you been um, just so broken from someone that you love that was taken away suddenly or someone that you um, some uh, just a slow death of a loved one, someone that you did not want to die, just a loss of any kind of sort. And you had trouble getting over it. I mean, it just it takes you out. It, it just takes it takes all the energy that you have to live life. You, you, know, you don't even want to go any further in life because the very person that meant the world to you has taken from you. I can think of several people in my life that, that almost, almost had that effect. My grandmother who died um, while I was deployed and I didn't even get to mourn her death. People like that. I, I think that's a lesson here. But here's the, here's the implications that go along with, with these lessons. I think the first uh, is we see it in verse 15. Look what Jesus says. He says, woman, why are you weeping? Th- those words are both words of comfort, but they're words of rebuke. And, and they're words of rebuke, particularly because Jesus is, is coming against Mary um, because she almost misses it. The, the re- her resurrected Lord is right there in front of her, and she almost doesn't even see him. She doesn't notice him. She, she almost misses it. He gives her a word of comfort, but also a word of rebuke because of the, 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 the unbelief that's operating in her heart because of her grief. And, you know, sometimes grief can do us like that. We can lose all sense of hope because of a, a loss or the, the grief that we feel because of a loved one. And so, Jesus appeared before Mary, revealing that the resurrection is, is really the, the answer to all of her fears and all of her sorrows. And she was about to miss it. But the resurrection changes everything. The resurrection changes this, this scene right here where Mary is, is filled with grief and death seems to have stolen the very thing that she loved the most. But this is what Jesus comes to, to tell her. He, he, he proclaims we're no longer we no longer have to be devoid of faith and hope. Why? Because the resurrection changes everything. This is how Paul articulates this in first in first Thessalonians chapter four. But we do not ha- want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that though you may grieve that that you may not grieve as others who do not have any hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Of course, there's a lot of theology in Paul's words here, but what what is he saying? 
This world is not the end. There's, there's more to life than just living and dying if, if you have trusted in Jesus. And as he was resurrected, so shall you be. The second thing is, the second implication is, is really the, the compassionate care that we see coming from Jesus towards Mary. Uh, if you think about this, Jesus had been, uh, I mean, he, on, the, on the cross, he really was, was, was warring in a sense. He was battling against cosmic powers on the cross, dying in your place for your sin. And in that moment where he died and rose again, he's, he's been deemed victorious. Here's how Paul says it in Colossians 1. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. There's, there's a war that goes on in the spiritual war behind the, the, this, this death of Jesus, such that his victory on the cross is a victory against principalities and powers in high places. But, but having done that, here's the neat thing about Jesus and his attention that he gives to Mary. He, he pours out his full attention on, on her hurt at this moment. I mean, she's just a, one of many disciples, yet he takes the time to assuage her and talk to her and make her, um, make her sorrows go away. Why? Because his presence. I mean, he's there in, in the, in the, in the physically there. And I think this says to us, we're, just, we're not just numbers in a book. God knows us individually. He knows our needs. And when Jesus, uh, when he bleeds, when he died and when he rose, he does that to know us and to love us. The third thing is, is simply this. Um, Jesus opens Mary's eyes when he calls her by name. She had no idea. She thought he was a gardener, but he calls her name and it opens her, her heart and her mind to receive her Savior um, I mean, in the flesh, God draws his people to himself personally, and he calls us all by name. That's the purpose behind John 10. When, when Jesus says, I, you know, I'm a shepherd, I'm a good shepherd that knows my sheep, I call them. And guess what? The shepherd hear his voice. When he calls us, we're supposed to respond. And, and, and we're not just supposed to look at him from afar, but we're supposed to follow. That's the implication here that John gives through this picture of of Mary. And so do you know the voice of Jesus that way? Do you know the voice of, of your Savior as a shepherd who, who knows you, who's calling to you and giving you the opportunity to respond? Do you know his witness in the gospel? Mary's the first encounter that we see. The second encounter is the disciples. Verse 18 again. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. And so Mary is Mary has a special position here in this resurrection story. Firstly, she's the first one that gets to proclaim the risen Jesus to to anybody, particularly to the disciples. Back in verse one and two, uh, she thought Jesus body had been taken. She goes back, rushes to tell uh, Peter and John and they want to investigate, so they, they come running to the tomb. I find it interesting, this is an aside, this is in part of my sermon. Don't you find it interesting that, that John tells us, he's probably bragging, that lack of, lack of humility, that um, the other disciple himself, he beat Peter. So it's, uh, these details are important. It's either telling us Peter was fat and John was young and, slu- young, young and fast, perhaps that. If you, if you ever see characterizations of, of John and Peter, notice how chubby Peter's look, Peter looks. Most people interpret that, that Peter's like slow. But here's what I think is going on. 
First of all, John is young. He lived the longest of the disciples. Uh, his, his, his letters and his gospel are written longer than, than uh, later than any other, the other gospel manuscripts. But here's what's going on. Peter denied Jesus, and he hasn't been reconciled yet. And so can you think about, I mean, think about that. Peter's, he's like anxious. It's like, okay, if this is true, I, I still haven't been reconciled to Jesus. I mean, he still thinks I'm a denier. I like curse myself because of him. And so I think there's a little bit of, you know, there's something in Peter's like, I'm going to go slow because if this is for real, then I, you know, I'm going to have to encounter Jesus. But here's the thing. They get to, they get to the grave, they get to the tomb, they go inside, and the, the text tells us that they saw and believed. What did they see? Scholars tell us when you peel back the onion of, of what the Greek text says, it says that the, the, the linen wrappings were just lying there undisturbed. What that simply means is, remember Lazarus when he came out of the grave? Okay, Lazarus was all wrapped up like a mummy when he came out of the grave, and Jesus had to tell them to unwrap him. As Jesus came out of the tomb, his linen garments are still there as in a wrapped form with the, with the spices just smushed down on them. And the head wrapping would have been taken off and just set neatly to the side. So what the, the, the behind-the-scenes look at this 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 resurrection tomb scene is that Jesus' glorified body obviously would have had to have come through the grave clothes to have just left them intact and for the spices to have pushed them down and that things were undisturbed. Jesus just got up in his glorified body because if someone had come and taken the tomb, taken him from the tomb, those wrappings would not have been there because they would have been expensive or they would have at least have been unwound and in a disheveled kind of Kind of perspective. That's just this for extra. Was that was that inf- good information? All right. I just found that just like neat to know. Um, here's the other neat thing I, I found out. I mean, so Peter and John, they're looking into the tomb. The Bible says they see and believe, but it's as, it's as if everything that Mary has told them, and even seeing the tomb the way it is, it's like this all it's, it's like Teflon. It's like it's bouncing off. They're not believing what they're seeing because they simply go home. And so in verse 18, Mary really gets another chance. She's just like, go back, tell Peter and John, I'm alive. Maybe they'll believe it this time. Verse 19. I'm having fun. I don't know if y'all can tell I'm having fun with this. I love this text. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood amongst them and said to them, peace be with you. Those are interesting words. I, 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 have, to be, uh, I have to be honest. If I were Jesus, those would not have been my first words to these disciples. I would have been like, so yeah, um, why, y- why y'all leave me like that? Why you betray me like that? And I might have, I might have performed some miracles or something and just like, clo- you know, like made their hands go like this and their mouths shut. I don't know. I would have, I would have done something vindictive. Thank God I'm not Jesus, right? Um, so Je- Jesus says very important words. He says, peace be with you. And you guys know that in, in the Hebrew, you've heard it. Shalom is the greeting of the Jews. Um, peace in the Old Testament has this, it has this grandiose idea of the tapestry of our lives. Uh, everything is in harmony with each other. It's all flowing. Uh, there's no fray or friction in any way. 
in our life. That's what shalom means. In the New Testament, it, it means that there's no situation or circumstance for which um, for which God can't come and, and bring his peace to us. Particularly, the Bible tells us that we need peace with God because we're at enmity with God. How, so, so how do we get peace with God? Jesus earns our peace on the cross. He dies on the cross as a sacrifice and a substitute, and that the wrath of God is diverted to him. He gives us his righteousness, and with that, we get his peace. So he says, I'm going to end, the, the hostility is over, peace, I'm here. I'm here because I've mediated for you uh, in, in God, in, in the place of God. Verse 20, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you, for, uh, if you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So uh, back in verse 19, John wants us to know it's the, it's the first day of the week. And that's an important detail. John gives us a lot of details that really are kind of Jewish details. But in, in, in this case, it's an important detail for us today because that would have been Sunday. What day did the Jews of this time Sabbath and, and worship on? Saturday. So this would have, been, would have been the first day of the week. It would have been a, a work day for them. But Jesus rose from the grave on a Sunday morning. And so believing Jews and Christian Gentiles, they broke from the Sabbath and said, we're going to, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Day on Sunday. So the reason why we have church today as Christian believers is because Jesus got up out of the grave on Sunday. And that's, I mean, every Sunday now is, is a mini resurrection day for us. And so uh, here's the scene. The disciples are, they're hunkered down. Uh, the, the doors are locked. They are scared. They're scared of the Jewish leaders who just put, who just convinced Pilate to put Jesus on the cross they think these same Jewish leaders, because they're associated with Jesus, are going to come and, and crucify or, or kill them. They are scared out of their minds as to what's going to happen to them, what's going to happen next. They're also confused because they actually don't even understand what it means that Jesus is not in the tomb and the grave clothes are the way that they, they sort of appeared. And they're trying to deal with what Mary said in regards to the angel showing up and saying he's, he's resurrected. But then, I mean, it, it all comes to, it, it all makes sense when Jesus shows up. Matthew, um, Luke's gospel in uh, chapter 24 says that, uh, that they thought he was a spirit. They thought he was a ghost. I mean, like Casper the ghost. And y'all old enough to remember old Casper the ghost? Jesus just shows up. The doors are locked. And so the impression is just like Jesus got up out of those, those grave clothes and, and exited the tomb with everything in place, he somehow, he just either just, appeared in the room or he came through in his resurrected glorified body through the closed doors and was able to show up um, in front of them. Of course, this has great, great, I mean, huge implications for what will happen to us at the resurrection. 
Jesus had a glorious resurrected body. He was no longer subject to the laws that govern our physical lives. And yet somehow he still remained a human being. He spoke, he talked, he walked. Later on, um, he, he would actually show them the, the, the holes in his hands and in his side, the, the, the physicality of that. And then later on the shore, before he ascended, he would eat fish amongst them in his glorified, resurrected state. I think there is, there is a, an organic, I'll call it an organic connection between Jesus' post-resurrection body and the, and the bodies that we will possess after Christ returns. Here's what Paul, here's what John says later in his gospel, First uh, John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Not only in, you know, in this life, God by the Spirit in the gospel is working to conform us to the image of Christ. But that, that never stops because after, after Jesus' second return and he resurrects the living and the dead, we're, we're still going to be made to look like him the very image of God, which is, I mean, that's just some some cool stuff. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. If you want to know about the resurrection, go to 1 Corinthians 15. Read this whole chapter. The theme is the resurrection. Just as we've borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. What's Paul saying? We're going to look just like the resurrected Jesus, at least some semblance of him. And here are the words that Paul uses to, to sort of give us a taste of what that looks like. He says, we're going to be imperishable. We're, our bodies are going to have glory. They're going to have power. It's going to be a spiritual body. And later he says, it's going to be immortal. Whatever infirmities you have in your body now, I got back pain that won't quit unless I do yoga, P90X yoga. Don't get mad at me. I do P90X yoga because it helps my back, right? I just don't do the meditation part. Um, whatever infirmity, whatever stuff that you have in your body that, that won't go away, you're going to die. And you're going to get a glorified, resurrected body, and you're not going to suffer any of that. Praise God. Some of y'all need to hear that. Just like the resurrection proves that everything can change for Mary, it's the same for these disciples. Verse 21. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you as the father has sent me. Even so, I'm sending you. So Jesus repeats this this greeting of peace and he's just reminding them. He's like, I, I, I've resurrected to give you peace with God. I, I You need me to propitiate the wrath of God. I, I, you need you either have to bear all your sin for yourself and 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 hold up the weight of of all that God will bear on you because of how sinful you are, or you need me. It's best to take me. But he, he also says this. He says, I, only give, I not only give you peace with God, I'm going to give you peace, the peace of God. And that's peace for your soul. It's peace for your heart. Back in John 14, when Jesus is explaining that he's going away and that he's going to prepare a place in heaven. Look look at what he says. John 14, 27. I'm going to leave you my peace, my peace I'm going to give you. Not like the world gives it to you. Don't don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't be afraid. I'm going to give you a peace that you can't buy if you had money for it. This is what Paul says in Philippians 4. One of my first one of the first verses I ever memorized as a Christian. 
And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This means on those crazy days when you just can't like you don't know up from down and all the people in your life are bothering you. And you I mean, you like save me from everybody. He's saying, I'm going to give you a peace on the inside that you can't explain. Peace with God, peace of God. We need that. Jesus offers us a divine peace that comes only because of our union with him. And then he adds one important detail. He says that the, the, here's another implication of the resurrection. It's mission. That's what he's talking about in the, the latter half of verse 22 and 23. And, and here it is. The natural progression is Jesus saves you by his work on the cross. He atones for your sin. He gives you peace with God and the peace of of God and this supernaturally is supposed to fill you with with joy to go out and do the things that God has commissioned us to do as his people. This these verses here 22 and 23, this is John's version of the of the great commission, Matthew 28. So instead of saying, you know, um, go into all the world baptizing in the name of the Father, Son and the Holy Spirit, he's like, I'm just going to breathe on you. And this is a foretaste of Pentecost where the Holy Spirit would come and the Spirit of God goes into those people and they spoke in tongues. And don't get messed, don't get like fixated on the tongues because the, it was the power of God to go and help them to be the witnesses of God so that they could go to Jerusalem and Judea and all Samaria and be salt and light in the midst of the world that desperately needs to know about Jesus. And then Thomas walks in. Thomas is the third encounter that Jesus shows us. Verse 24, I got to hurry up. Now, Thomas was one of the 12 who uh, called the twin, was not not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will not believe. We don't know where Thomas was when the first time Jesus shows up, perhaps he was out getting coffee. Maybe he might have gone to Chipotle to get some takeout for the disciples. But for whatever reason, he wasn't present. And so the disciple, he gets back. The disciples tell him, you missed it, Thomas. Jesus shows up. And this is what Thomas, this is what he says. He's like, I don't believe you. I mean, these are his friends, his buddies. They had walked and talked and hung out with Jesus three years together. And Thomas is like... I don't believe you. Maybe you feel like Thomas in regards to your faith. I mean, Thomas is a doubter. That's where we get the, this the phrase doubting Thomas. But more than that, Thomas was a cynic. Thomas is this kind of guy. He, he hears all the things that the, the, his buddies are saying around him, yet he refuses to believe. And we don't, I don't know what's going on with Tom, Thomas. Perhaps he feels overlooked. Perhaps he's, um, he's like, well, why didn't Jesus come and appear to me? I mean, I, I, I've done some good stuff for Jesus. At least he could have done was just come and like give me a little glimpse. I, I didn't I didn't deny him like that dude over there. I mean, why am I so overlooked and left out? I, I, of course, I'm I'm at living on the scripture. And I shouldn't do that. But is I think that some of those things were going on in Thomas's life. And perhaps you feel like that, too. Where's God when I need him? And so in his in Thomas's hardness and in his hurt, what did he do? He didn't deny Jesus, but he refused to believe when all his friends told him the exact truth. Thomas was not just a doubter. He was obstinate. 
He says, I'll never believe unless I touch his wounds and his side and his hands. I'll never believe. And this is what Jesus does. He makes him wait eight days. Eight days. And so guess this is what's this is what's going on in the scene. The disciples, they're all in this room, they're hunkered down, uh, but they're like energized because they've seen Jesus. It's like a party in there. They got the doors locked because they're still afraid. They're like freaked out. Somebody's going to come and kill us. But they've seen the Lord. And they're, anticip- they're, they're like glowing. And you got Thomas over here, bitter, mad. He's like, I can't believe these jokers. What's up with Jesus coming in and showing them who he is? And it can't be true. That's what's going on with Thomas. But obviously, Jesus shows up. And everything changes. What do you think Jesus says to Thomas when he shows up? Look, dude, you doubted me. What am I to do? Jesus, I mean, Jesus extends grace to Thomas. He says the same thing he said to the disciples when he first showed up to them. He says, peace be with you. Aren't those just kind words? He extends grace and he allows Thomas to touch him in the places where the blood and the water flow. Blood for a better covenant water for a better washing and the doubter and the cynic and the heart of a bitter unbelieving man melted in a moment thomas has an encounter with jesus and we know that because of his response verse 28 thomas answered him my lord and my god jesus said i have uh, have you believed because you said you've seen me blessed are those who have not seen me and yet believed Maybe you can identify with Thomas. You know, we, we, we live in D.C. We're, we're technical. We're intellectual. We are taught, or at least we learn here in D.C., don't believe anything, especially political rhetoric, unless you can, I mean, like, got tangible proof. Don't believe it unless you can see it. Um, I bet Thomas even, I mean, Thomas is this type, I'm, I'm sure this is part of his personality, that he didn't believe anything until he saw it. Remember Thomas challenged Jesus when Jesus says, I'm going away, and when you come, you can't, when I go, you can't come. He challenged it like, Lord, where are you going that I can't come to? So, I mean, perhaps you're like that. And I, I would tell you, there's room for you at the table just like Thomas. But here's the thing. Jesus isn't, I mean, it's, all, your, all your questions aren't going to necessarily be answered. You're going to have doubts, and you're going to have to work around those doubts. Here's what Thomas had to deal with. Jesus was dead, and now he's right in front of him, and he's alive. And because of that, everything changed. Thomas went from a cynic to one who exalts the Savior, and you can too. And then the fourth, the fourth encounter that Jesus shows us is very simple. It's us. It's people like you and me, women and men, who are going through life at various, in various ways, and uh, perhaps you've had an encounter with Jesus and his, and, and his intent is that you would be like him, that you would be changed to, to be a lover and a server and a worshiper of him. And that really is why John wrote this gospel. He wrote it so that people like us, long after he died, long after this biblical culture would even exist, would come to know Jesus. And he says this in verse 30 and 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You're the fourth character in the story of the resurrection. Perhaps you're like Mary. Um, you're grieving loss. You've, you've had 
heart-wrenching hurt in your life that you can't get over. You won't let go of the grief. You're, you just, you're in a perpetual state of mourning. And this is what the resurrection says to you. It says that Jesus is alive. The resurrection gives you hope that there's more to life than living and dying. The resurrection also shows you the care and the compassion of a Savior who lives for you, dies for you, and gives his life for you so that he can know you and call you by name. The resurrection gives you that life. Perhaps you're like all the other disciples. And this is what I call the other disciples. They're just good church people. They're trying to do what's right. Sometimes they have highs. Sometimes they have lows. Sometimes they're getting it right. But most, you know, they've got some wrong stuff going on in there, too. They're meandering through life, trying to figure things out. Life is dealing them ups and downs, navigating their way through. And Jesus says to people like that, people like us, he says, peace to us. There's something more. But here's, here's what Jesus does for people like, like the disciples. He says, I'm going to set you free. I'm going to point you toward uh, the, your goal in life, which is the, the glorification of me. And he's, I'm going to invite you not just to worship me, but, but to come on mission with me. As the Father sent me, I'm sending you to go and do the works that I've done while I'm on the earth. And the implication of this is simply church is not just about getting your needs met. Can you come to church and get your needs met? Absolutely. I just had a church membership meeting about all that stuff. Yes, this is just the place to come to get your needs met, but it's not all about getting your needs met. We're supposed to gather together as God's church so that we could get ready to go out and engage the world. The church is the hope of the world. We're not supposed to be hunkered down behind, you know, closed doors, close the windows, turn on our Christian songs, play our Christian music, sing along and then go and break and be all to ourselves. God has meant for you to rub shoulders with people who aren't like you who don't like God, and, and for you to introduce him uh, to them and them to him. But maybe you're like Thomas. You doubt it. You, you, you don't. I mean, you just, you, you're in this perpetual state of doubt. Perhaps you're even a cynic, and you, uh, you're trying to smart and reason yourself as to why you're like that. And here's the beautiful thing about Thomas. He's the only one that Jesus invited in that touches wounds, and he might invite you in as well. Not might. He will. Church history and scripture tells us the impact of the resurrection on all of these characters and their encounters. Mary becomes the first person to proclaim the, the, the gospel of the risen Savior to anybody, the disciples and others. The, the, the disciples go on to, to, from being cowards locked up behind doors to being fearless leaders of the early church. Thomas, was, Thomas wrote some extra biblical books books that, uh, that we can read about but that weren't included in the Bible. Um, and it's said of him that he was the beneficiary of, of secret revelations from the Lord uh, in the Gospel of Thomas. Uh, he's said to have evangelized the nation of India, and he became a martyr. Thomas died not doubting but knowing who he served. Here's the question for all of us. as We, we got one more week in John. But here's the question. This is the overriding question for all, all of John. What's keeping you from believing? What is keeping you from believing? You have Jesus' words. You have his works. You have these encounters that he showed you. What's keeping you from believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the, the anointed one who comes not just to the Jews, but comes to you to, to 
represent God to you, to mediate you before God and to lead you as your king. He comes as the son of God. Here's the thing. Jesus isn't just a good example for us with great teaching that we can emulate. A guy that just died and, um, you know, we talk about him once a year. He's God come down to earth. Why? Because we can't work our way to God. God condescends to us so that he can draw near to us because we can. That's what the son of God means. And when you get Jesus and his life, you get abundant life. You get eternal life. I mean, who wouldn't want that? The resurrection, the power of the resurrection changes everything. Some of you need to make that change today. Some of you need to avail yourself to the power that the resurrection can give you to change. Today isn't Easter. It sounds, didn't it sound like Easter? I, I don't have an Easter message yet. I just preached it. Darn it. <laughs> I got to come up with another one. But here's the thing. Every day is an opportunity to have an encounter with Jesus because Jesus rose from the grave because he's alive. Everything in our lives can change. That deserves an amen. amen. Let's pray. Father, we are, we are indebted to you for life, for your death that gives us life, and for your resurrection that gives us hope that there's more for us to come. Your resurrection empowers us to live lives in this life, representing you on your earth to people who don't know you. So, Lord, would you... Give us faith and hope to believe in these few words that we've read today, that they are true. God, would you help those who struggle to believe, to believe that Jesus really is the Christ, the Son of God, and he's come to give them life. And I pray that you would help us all to partake. And we say this, and amen it in your name. Amen.